1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host, and today I am here with Ben Fong to discuss his incredible book, Death and Mastery, Psychoanalytic Drive Theory, and the subject of late capitalism. Before we get to the interview, there's a couple pieces of um, small business. The first is that, um, just for listeners, uh, if you want to hear more of myself and Anna Fiszon, we were interviewed uh, by Harvey Schwartz from the IPA at their... Um, On their webcast or their podcast, some old-fashioned webcast, um, it's called Off the Couch, IPAofftheCouch.org, I believe is the address, but easy enough to find, just put in Off the Couch. We are episode 17, and we say all kinds of really, um, I don't know, it was a very, like, raucous interview. Um, Anyway, so uh, that's one thing. And second of all, it's autumn, and so um, I'm thinking it's death drive season. The perfect timing to do this interview. Um, in fact, <laughs> my next few interviews are going to engage death drive and or aggressivity. Um, so today we speak with Ben. Uh, next week I'm going to speak with John Launer on uh, the, his biography of uh, Sabina Spielrein. Um, and then after that, uh, Vanessa Sinclair, Manya Steinkohler and their book on uh, Lacanian Perspectives on Psychoanalysis and Violence. Um, I guess this is because I'm teaching narcissism and aggression this semester at the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies, so I'm soaking from head to toe in a death drive bath. Um, so joining me today to uh, kick off, um, to, get, to get the bubbles going um, in the bathtub, um, here we are with Ben Fong. Um, welcome, Ben.
0: Um, thanks so much for having me, Tracy.
1: It's a it's a pleasure and it's something that um, I've been meaning to do for quite a while. Um, Just to let the listeners know, uh, Ben is on the faculty at the Honors College at Arizona State University and his research interests um, hover around the intersections of ideology, psychology and religion. Um, This is his first book. He has two others um, in the uh, in the works. Is that correct? Yes. Two other length projects that you're um, you're uh, at work on at the moment.
0: Yes, that is correct.
1: Yeah. Um, sorry, Casey. There,
0: yeah. There's a there's a little bit of uh, uh, noise in the line. Do you hear that, or is it just me?
1: I'm not hearing it. What are you hearing? Okay.
0: Uh, yeah. Just a little bit of uh, static connection. It's okay.
1: Okay. You seem to be recording very well. Um, okay. So okay. Um, hopefully the static is not recording, but if so, we will we will work on it. Um, uh, ben has two books in the works. One is an academic monograph on the history of psychology and religion beginning in the 18th century. That'll be like a thousand pages. Um, and <laughs> and the second is going to be, this sounds super cool, a trade publication on drugs in the history of capitalism. Uh, ben also writes uh, for the New York Times philosophy blog, The Stone, uh, Jacobin Magazine, Huffington Post um, as well. So Ben, how we usually start off our interviews at New Books and Psychoanalysis is we ask um, about your motivations as if you can know them. And um, <laughs> So we, we asked what, what motivated, I want to ask what motivated you, uh, aside from, I think maybe this was part of a dissertation. I don't know. I'm some, some of this, I'm not sure. But aside from that, what motivated you to, uh, to write this book?
0: Um, sure. Um, I, I guess I'll start with the, the theoretical problems. Um, I've, I've always been, uh, very interested in Frankfurt School of Critical Theory and, um, their, their conception of, um, the culture industry of subjection and late capitalism, what that looks like, uh, it's always been very appealing to me and, uh, makes a lot of sense, not just of, um, the kind of like bleak, bleak post, uh, war period, the Fortis Keynesian period that they were writing about, uh, but makes a lot of sense of, you know, uh, today's capitalist society, neoliberal capitalist society. Um, and, you know, I've always found especially their interest in psychoanalysis to be very uh, interesting. They, they, um, I don't the the sort of core of the Frankfurt School were not themselves um, psychotherapists or psychoanalysts, uh, but they were all very interested in psychoanalysis as sort of part of the ether that they worked in. Um, and so they incorporated Freud's ideas into basically all of their writings. I'm thinking specifically of Adorno, Horkheimer and, and Herbert Marcuse. Um, but the, the way in which they did so was always, um, it, w- it was always indirectly. And I, I felt that there was a sort of marked absence of an engagement with Freud's uh, sort of second dual drive theory, the theory of the death drive uh, uh, in its opposition to Eros. Um, and despite the fact that so much of their writing actually does pertain to the kind of nexus that Freud was uh, interested in when he investigated those two drives. Um, So, you know, the the sort of theoretical inspiration was that uh, there was this engagement between psychoanalysis and critical social theory that took place in the works of the first generation Frankfurt School that sort of systematically um, uh, did not engage with the second dual drive theory. And so what I was interested in doing was sort of figuring out, well, if we if we give Adorno, Horkheimer and Marcuse's theories uh, a better grounding in psychoanalytic drive theory. Um, maybe their conceptions of subjection and late capitalism look a little bit more convincing. Um, So that's one angle. Um, The other theoretical angle is just sort of within psychoanalysis itself. Um, I always found the the sort of reception of the theory of the death drive quite interesting. Like on the one hand, um, I don't know, I mean, you'd know better than me, but it, it seems like most of the psychoanalytic community just thinks that this is not not worthwhile, uh, it's sort of part of Freud's, uh, bad biologism or something that we can just sort of reject it out of hand. Um, and then the people who do take it seriously, I think are always sort of sending it off in like new directions, you know, so it, it becomes a kind of cipher for whatever people want to talk about. Um, and so, you know, in, in, in Jean Laplanche's writing, it's like unbound libido in, um, in, uh, Julie Christeva's writing, it's semiotic cora. in in Andre Green, it's Negative Narcissism. and Derrida, it's like Différence vis-à-vis the Pleasure Principle. And so it's, it's sort of always being sent off in these new directions. And there hadn't really been a kind of systematic investigation of the original writings on the death drive, which were the first, uh, sorry, the uh, fourth and fifth sections of Beyond the Pleasure Principle. So I really wanted to get into that material and try to make the best sense I could of um, what are, you know, very confusing sections of Beyond the Pleasure Principle, like, you know, almost unintelligible. Um, right. in order to <laughs> I just, I just text. taught it
1: last week. So um, I just taught sections four and five and I showed up in the class with one of those, um, you know, They're sort of small plastic things for laundry that are like you know have the liquid on the inside and they look like pillows and you put it in the in the washing machine, and I showed up in the in the class and I was like just sort of pass this around. Could you imagine at a psychoanalytic institute? (laughs) And I was like, so this is where we start, okay?
0: (laughs) Yeah, this is the living vesicle.
1: that's right, right, right. It's really so. What what do you make of this sort of the ashul and and the sort of negation or the, the Oh, as you note, the constant attempt to transform the death drive as Freud wrote about it into something else altogether. Um, what do you, what, what's up with that? I think about a lot.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that part of it is actually like a lack of serious engagement with the second dual drive theory itself. And so without like some sort of like systematic engagement with, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the source of, um, the death drive, which is sort of curious given it's the topic of the death drive um, without that it, it sort of just becomes a cipher for whatever people want to talk about like whatever sort of theory is interesting the day uh, people latch on the death drive and sort of see it as sort of consonant with what they want to talk about and so I you know I, I felt that part of it was just like a lack of um, really systematic engagement with Freud um, himself and the the, the kinds of um, problems he was dealing with when he formulated the concept of the death drive so what i wanted to do in the book was to try to like you know uh, go back to freud once again like everyone wants to do um and and try to spell out uh, what precisely he was going for on his own terms um right. and then part part of it you know it's it's um i don't know it's an inherently fascinating concept i guess like the idea that we would be driven towards our own death i mean you know you can sort of read a lot of things into it um so i think right. that's in place. what does
1: Freud say Freud says something about its dem- why people stay away from psychoanalysis I think this is in section five that they see it as demonic that the fa- the idea that one would want to repeat uh, in perpetuity until like we come into this world and we we go we go out the way we came in repeating something over and over again it's an extraordinarily um, it's so pessimistic it's optimistic I find uh, and uh, I think I think one of the things that came out actually in teaching it this week was I was like there's no better critique of neoliberalism than these two sections. I mean, progress is not possible, right? And here we are, you know, doing what we do again and again. Um, but you yes. do something. Oh, go ahead. No, I mean
0: I think you're right about that. I, I I think it's really easy to read the the repetition compulsion as Freud is sort of talking about it early on in Beyond the Pleasure principle. As like a very um I don't know dour picture of like um, human mastery, uh, but I don't think it's about that at all. I think Freud is saying like, look, like we're like let's let's not go so far as like progress, right? That like we're actually like getting anywhere, but um, this like this this little living vesicle, which he takes to be sort of representative of like the human psyche uh, at birth, um, it does go somewhere, right? It does try to like make sense of its reality, to cope with its reality, to like find a place in a hostile reality for itself. Um, and that's not nothing. I mean, that's something.
1: Right. It's there. There's There's movement. Um, for sure. Um, but you do something, uh, a couple of interesting things. You bring in low I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you make him dance with Lacan. Um, wow. Okay. That was a first. Um, and, uh, I mean, I have, listen, why, why Lowewald? What drew you to bring Lowewald in to your overall argument? And maybe you want to tell people like how you see Lowell fitting in within your, your larger sort of trajectory. in the book.
0: Um, sure. So Hans Lowewald was, a. I I think he's generally lumped in with the ego psychologist, even though I think he's a lot more interesting than, than most ego psychologists, um, and you know my interest in his work which is not uh very large uh, most of his papers are collected in a um volume that's appropriately titled papers on psychoanalysis uh and <laughs> and there's no Dry it, as know, a bone. <laughs> yeah exactly and and in a way you know it's it he he is very uh, he's very different from from many psychoanalytic writers lacan included uh in not really offering sort of like interesting points of departure. Uh, He's really sort of grounded in an exegesis of Freud himself. He doesn't think of what he writes as, um, you know, particularly Lewaldian or anything. He's just sort of trying to understand Freud. Um, And in that, you know, I I felt like I had a fellow traveler. I was doing the same thing. And I think that um, he really took seriously um, making sense of Freud's concepts within their particular problematics, as I was trying to do with the death drive. And Lowell himself didn't write about the death drive. In fact, he, he kind of goes out of his way to uh, avoid the topic, um, which is kind of strange. But the, the way in which he understands his developmental theory, he's constantly making reference to the living vesicle, uh, you know, the sections of Beyond the Pleasure Principle, where Freud talks about the genesis of life Um, And so it's, it's all sort of right there in his explanations, even if he's not like naming the death drive all the time.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, he does something interesting with, uh, if I recall, um, with the superego. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's this idea, I call him, I call it the marshmallow test of, uh, the superego because he's, he's, he's investing the ego's interest in its own future. Is that the idea? Something? Yeah. future oriented element um, you want to say something about that I mean about the because that seems to me important to your argument right that,
0: yes that is- yeah, absolutely so so both in that chapter on Lowell and then um, later when I get back to to uh, Adorno and Horkheimer, um, I do want to talk about the superego in a positive sense. Um, mm-hmm. I mean I think that uh, Simon Critchley in one of his books, like there's a chapter called the superego is my amigo um and it's it's something like that i guess i mean i think that the the general um <clears throat> understanding of the superego in psychoanalysis is that it's like a punitive guilt oriented agency that it's you know that it's uh, the kind of uh punitive father or like you know uh, like religious pastor sort of like internalized sort of always criticizing you negatively and, Limiting the your police. autonomy and <laughs> causing neurosis in all sorts right. of ways. Right. Um, but Lowell thought of the superego as a positive entity. And I, I think that, you know, this comes out of his reading of Freud, as much as Freud understood the superego to be sort of intimately bound up in the kind of like religious guilt that Freud you know, wanted to move beyond. Um he also speaks about it in positive terms sometimes and, and does think about the superego as a concept concept around which a research agenda should be based. So, you know, there's, for instance, there's a short paper on humor uh, in the later Freud's life uh, where he, he talks about, you know, humor only being possible if there's an agency within the psyche uh, from which it can glance upon itself, right? You can only sort of like, uh, you know, make self deprecating jokes, for instance, if you can sort of see yourself as if from the outside, and he sort of see, uh, attributes that function to the superego. Um, and that's undoubtedly for Freud, of course, a good thing. Um, and it, I think in that same paper, he says that, look, we've we've, we've got a lot more to learn about the superego. Uh, this is a fairly new concept in my work, and I hope that it receives more attention in the future. Um and I think that what Lowell does is sort of take that cue and, and run with it. And so what he sort of sees the superego as doing is taking, uh, taking the kind of like tension of pre-Oedipal life and channeling it in a way that we can, uh, you know, we aren't always rent between um, a kind of schizoid need for independence and also this this sort of concomitant desire for, for immersion within complete dependence. Uh, but we can sort of take that tension and channel it at a higher level. Um, and so, I think that Lowell thinks that the superego is sort of what allows us to be um, functional adults in a way to sort of under to sort of be future oriented rather than always wanting to regress to some primal state.
1: Right. and that that primal state um, uh, in in the book, um, I began to think about Adorno. Horkheimer and their hatred of weakness. I had never, you know, I mean, I read them back in graduate school years ago, and I hadn't really gotten this same sense, but I could practically feel like Adorno's gag reflex, uh, you know, as if he smelled something awful. You quote him um, saying, the ever-present temptation of regressing to a state where the basic desires for libidinal gratification, ellipsis, dot, 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 once again, take control. And, it's funny because i was thinking about lowald and one thing that i really like about lowald um if i understand him correctly or understand this aspect of his thinking is um it's sort of a reiteration of um you know no voice is ever wholly lost um no developmental phase is ever um, completed in other words it's all it's all there you know the oral the anal that you know like it's like we're never we're never done um with these things. And yet, right. I was thinking about the, maybe I see the Frankfurt school as having, uh, they, they stick around, you know, they you know, you, you, they keep, you know, people keep working and reworking as you're doing, um, and many others on these concepts. And yet the concept I, I wanted, when I first read the Frankfurt school in my twenties, I was like, I want this stuff to really take hold. And yet it doesn't take hold it's like almost as if their interpretation of things is like too disturbing. Like it cracks through Freud's, uh, you know, through that, like that crust uh, that, that he, that Freud describes. I, I just was, was wondering about that because you attempt to link up. I mean, you're, you're, you're a part of the project of keeping, um, you know, the culture industry, um, idea afloat. I, I don't know if anything that I'm saying, uh, resonates at all but it is curious to me that are they overstimulating at some level that they're not more more successful you know
0: um you know i mean it's going to be hard for like the overwhelming bleakness that comes from something <laughs> like the writing of adorno to ever be like popular uh right. so right. so in, in some sense i don't think that that's going to happen i mean just, just actually to pick up on the Lowell part, uh, just to sort of finish that line of thought. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that you're, you're right about that. And just to sort of t- take up the explanation from a different angle. Um, Lowell really understands um, the primary drive of um of the neonate as being a a drive towards kind of psychic undifferentiation and that's the link i make in the book between Mm -hmm. freud's death drive and lowell's uh what he calls the urge to union or the urge to psychic undifferentiation um so you know essentially like you're born and you want nothing more than to sort of like be reabsorbed in this like primal undifferentiated state where you're not alone where you're not separate where you're not individualized um, and, and so, you know, Lowell has a very interesting story about how we go from that, you know, um, sort of rejecting our independence, rejecting our separateness to eventually sort of like overcoming, um, those developmental obstacles and sort of eventually proudly proclaiming oneself as I, as, as ego. Um, but he thinks that a, a crucial transformation happens with the birth of the superego which is that so much of um, you know, pre-Oedipal life uh, for Lowell is governed by this tension between, on the one hand, our desire to erase our individuated existence, our desire to return to this sort of primal undifferentiation, to sort of be at one with our, with our environment, um, and, and this sort of like uh, opposite drive to, uh, towards ever-increasing mastery, towards ever-increasing independence, capability, skill, etc., Um, And I think what he thinks is so uh, crucial about the birth of the superego, which is also like the overcoming of of Oedipus, um, is that it takes that that primal urge to union and it redirects it, it channels it towards a um, towards a progressive goal. So rather than trying to always regress to this previous state of existence where you are, you exist in this undifferentiated ooze the goal rather is a sort of synthetic drive. You take that and you try to build um, ever greater unities, but at the secondary process level uh, in terms of like seeking a wholeness in, in, in reality rather than a sort of like fantasy undifferentiated state. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what, um, what Lowell sees as the, um, as the benefit of the superego. And I think it's, it sort of gets to his, his sort of key, um, his key intervention in the theory of the death drive. What he wants to say is that the death drive and Eros are not opposed, but Eros is actually a uh, sort of progressive channeling of the death drive within the secondary process. And that's an idea I think that's really um, novel and interesting and sort of, uh, again, one I think that a research agenda could be sort of built around. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, and then to get to the Frankfurt school, Yeah, I mean, I I don't have a good answer for that, I guess. Sorry, my computer's Uh, going off. I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, I think that uh, there is... um, The the Frankfurt School, like when they're not just sort of seen as uh, too depressing or not something to engage with, I think that they're seen as like elitists. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I don't necessarily think that's wrong. And I, I actually think that like Adorno for one would be perfectly fine with the charge. Like he didn't, he didn't pretend to be like an every person.
1: Right.
0: Um, he wasn't uh, part
1: of the primordial density. He had really differentiated himself.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, in, in his, in like, like a, in his, uh, that is
1: the mass, right. I mean, the, we're talking about merger, yeah. the primordial density, the mother and the child, the mass.
0: Yeah. And and I think that even at the level of theory, like he had very little interest in, um, in primary process, like regression, like things like that. I think Marcuse was much more interested in, you know, the the kind of like emancipatory potential of fantasy and this kind of thing. And Adorno was like, no, no, no. Like we don't want to be children again. Like we want to be adults. We just have to be better adults than we currently are.
1: <laughs> well, there, the, I haven't seen the word maturity in a long time in a book. <laughs> and uh, you have it a couple of times here and there, like maturity and, yeah. um, and, Well, before we get into maturity, I mean, I just want to note, you know, to you and to the audience. So we have an author here who is very interested in unpopular, very unpopular things. He's interested in the death drive. He's interested in, you know, the sort of roundly critiqued, although beloved in some ways, but still critique Frankfurt School um, or School of Critical Theory. And he also is interested in mastery a word that has um, a lot of really—I mean—talk about um, overstimulating. Uh, you know, I'm—I'm I'm a little bit more with um, you know Hannah Arendt, and uh, I'm like, whoa, mastery! Uh, oh my God, it makes you know—when make you, know, you say mastery, I you know start to head for the hills a little bit. Um, but but you think mastery is conceptually important, and you do something really um, interesting with it in the book. So I wanted you to talk to us about. It how you rescued this other unpopular idea um, and are working with it.
0: Sure. I mean, this is also, um, uh, just sort of came out of a theoretical problem, which is the use of mastery. uh, Well, I guess like the use of the of the word mastery more generally, Um, as you say, when you hear the word, I I hear those, I hear those connotations too. You know, you think of like, mastery in terms of like domination subjugation Hegel right like that's the sort of I think natural register for the term today but we we do use the 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 term in a more basic sense to designate uh, you know the acquisition of a skill or the possession of a basic grip on a difficult situation like the kind of like mastery you would gain in learning an instrument or a language or something um and I think that uh uh those two are are different, but they're clearly related as well. Sorry, one second sure. um, so uh, so um, yeah i mean the the sort of like interesting interesting theoretical problem is that in the uh, in the standard edition the the standard edition tra- translated by the Strachey's, um, they use the word mastery constantly, but what is less known is that they're actually translating two different uh, two different words, bimächtigung mm-hmm. um, and bewältigung. And they these two words are related in Freud, but they're they're also uh, used differently. So um, you see the the sort of concern with uh, or like the, what's sort of translated as like uh, oftentimes in, in terms of the instinct for mastery. Um, as the, the, the sort of like dominating, subjugating, uh, drive, uh, it's, it's about like seizing power over. Um, and then the other problematic is much more about, uh, you know, basic coping with the situation, uh, gaining mastery in the kind of second sense of just like being okay in a hostile reality, finding a place, finding skills and capacities in order to deal with, to deal with life. Um, and uh, what's sort of most interesting about their translation choice, which is oftentimes seen as an error, uh, people love criticizing the Strachys, even though you know, despite their Herculean efforts. I know, uh, my God. They, uh, you know, they, there's actually some justification for what they do because the two problematics, you know, before 1920, Freud really, ta- really used these terms in different senses and I, and I, in a different context as well, and I go over that in the book. Um, But in 1920, he starts to use them almost interchangeably. Uh, He starts to think about um, the process of coming to cope with an environment as as very much uh, related to the process of dominating and seizing and controlling. Um, And it's it's, you know, it's in 1920, really, that um, that those two things converge. Um, so I think that like that was the sort of other half of the interest of the project, not just looking at the death drive, but looking at the fate of the drive to mastery, which is, um, not one of the sort of more used concepts in psychoanalysis.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. The ego is not the master in its own house. I'm thinking of all these master, um, of course it's extraordinarily gendered. And I kept thinking, oh, mastery, oh, mastery over, oh, right. This primordial density, um, oh, this dreaded mother, um, Oh God, you know, and she's, I, I disagree with Lowell, the mother, I, I have the idea, like there's not a hostel outside, but then we had, we, you know, put in some, like sort of, uh, you know, a sprinkling of Lacan and you, we get something altogether different. Um, I wanted to ask two things. All right, this might sound completely strange, but um, as I read this book, I was like, this book is a parenting manual. This man has written a parenting manual. Um, and I swear to God, I was like, is this a book on parenting? Is this a book to help new fathers? Is this book an attempt to help parents go beyond feeling uh, that they're being manipulated? Um, so so <laughs> I wanted to ask, could you help me to understand uh, or make sense of my associations? Uh, does that sound completely like, like there's a piece of this book that is about, it's it's about you know, t- tolerating aggression and being a parent—is is that that make any sense to you? Yeah, um, <laughs> sure. Uh, Are I you, mean, I don't know. I don't know if you're a parent. I was like, he just had a baby. Like, while he was writing this book, I was like, this is a book about. I mean, excuse me. You know, like probably you don't have any kids or whatever. But I was like, did he just have children? And he's he's like staring, and going like, my God, how am I going to help them develop? You know, a little mastery.
0: Uh, You are, you are spot on. Um, Yeah, no, I, I have three, I have three kids all pretty young still. Um, The first was born uh, while I was still writing this actually. So yeah, very, very much spot on. Um, I was also reading books like um, he's not so much read uh, that much anymore, but uh, his books are all great. Uh, Ike Balbus, he's got this one book, uh, forgetting the title, but it's something like um, the, the sort of like, Journeys of a Feminist Father, or something. So I was reading stuff like that as well.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> feminist fathering. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean <laughs> now um, I've heard everything. <laughs> okay. uh, so
0: yeah, I mean I, I think that um, one thing that I do appreciate appreciate about Lowell is that he's always he's always interested in um, psychic development insofar as it takes place and what he you know, kind of coldly calls a global situation, but which he actually means to be like, you know, in the context of like a whole family and a whole society um, more generally. Um,
1: Or like (laughs) Winnicott's Surround. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I I think that um, what's most interesting about, uh, you know, much of the Frankfurt School's work is that they really put uh, the family at the center of so much of their understanding of capitalist society, so it's a sort of like social reproduction theory, but it was it was to sort of center. Well, like how does the um, you know typical bourgeois family or the typical working class family? Um, how are different you know roles internalized by parents? How are those uh, then mirrored or echoed or rebelled against by children? Um, how do you see society sort of playing out within within an individual family? um so yeah so i I, I sort of can uh, i think both are true, both the sort of theoretical interest and the personal interest um, <laughs> in, in parents as as subjects for sure
1: well you you actually develop and i was like this is i think i was like where, where did I first get that idea and it's in this um you you develop something that I think is you know really a unique contribution to the field of psychoanalysis um which is a, a you have a you develop a new theory of the origins of um, aggressivity, uh, and I'm not sure um, I can do full justice to it. I mean, I, I have a, a bit of a quote here. Um, let's see, uh, children when they are genuinely aggressive and not lashing out in frustration are only mimicking behavior of which they have felt themselves to be objects. Um, you know, I, I was thinking Winnicott tells us that the mother hates the baby first, but, um, right. which is, you know, which is like one of his great contributions to, um, to alleviating, uh, you know, too much superego guilt for, for the mother. But, um, I wanted, I want to ask you to elaborate because I think it really is, it is unique. Um, you're thinking about the origins of aggressivity. It's someplace between like, I'm, I was a little annoyed. I was like, what if we just said it was innate? What do we lose? You know, so what? Um, but you're trying to tease something else out, um, beyond betwixt and between the innate and the environmental. Um, do you care to say more about it?
0: Yeah, I think that that, that's right. Um, uh, you know, in, in much of psychoanalysis, uh, aggression or um, aggressivity are thought of as sort of intrapsychic phenomena that they, they sort of are generated from within the psyche and then projected outwards. And, um, actually I sort of start with Lacan there and sort of talk about the mirror stage and, um, you know, as, as much as the mirror stage is, uh, a sort of about a relationship with one's environment, he is pretty clear in much of his work that he understands aggressivity to be intrapsychic, that it's a sort of intrapsychic um, product of this specular dialectic that's then projected outwards. And he implicit, uh, explicitly, um, opposes himself to Hegel on this, on this mm-hmm. point. Um, so I, I was sort of like trying to draw that out that Lacan really thinks about this as intrapsychic, And, you know, I, I also didn't want to go to the other end, which is to say that, you know, uh, uh, aggression is just, something that you take from your environment, right? That like you, you identify with the aggressor and, in Anna Freud's phrase. Um, and that's how, that's the sort of like genesis of aggression. Um, Which would
1: be old school Frankfurt school. Like I saw it on television and it was in, it suddenly was within me and that was, you know, I sort of, have absor- I've absorbed the message and I'm at one with it. Right.
0: Yeah, totally. And, and, and I don't doubt that, um, you know, aggression uh, is generated in that way. Um, that you know, this n- none of this is to doubt that um, you know people encounter all sorts of like violence and aggression in their lives that is internalized and then um, you know externalized in the form of their own aggression. Um, but I was trying to like figure out where we can sort of make sense of like the genesis of aggressivity and with and I, I like Lacan's phrase aggressivity instead of aggression. He sort of uh-huh. thinks as ag- he thinks of aggressivity as. Um, coming before and preconditioning aggression. So aggressivity, so aggression like is involved in actual like, aggressive violent acts. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas aggressivity is sort of more basic. He thinks about it, I think um, in terms of a, a, a desire to dominate the other sort of out of existence, the sort of desire to be uh, for, for omnipotence really to sort of like right. inflate the self to a point where there's really no room for the other. The other is sort of dominated out of existence. Um, and I like that because, you know, like we know what that experience is like, uh, without necessarily feeling aggression per se. Like you can sort of, you can name experiences where you're, you know, you're just talking to someone and you feel like the the air has been sucked out of the room by their personality. Um, and it's not aggression exactly right. They're not hitting you. But at the same time, you can see something aggressive about it, and so I like this conception of aggressivity because it kind of makes sense of this.
1: Um, well, it's an, it's sort of a shell that that you know it, it is a an an, an armor or a narcissist. I mean, I think of it as a sort of a, an act of protection, blocking out the other.
0: Yes, precisely, precisely. And 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 what I was trying to do uh, theoretically in that chapter was to say, well, where does that like where where does that come from um like so much of the developmental process as lowell describes it as and as i describe it up to that point in the book is about this tension between a desire for like you know casting off um the trappings of the ego and reimmersing oneself in the primordial density on the one hand, and then the desire for ego independence on the other. So if that's the sort of dialectic between death on the one hand and sort of psychic mastery in the, in the, in the non-aggressive sense, um, then where does this, this uh, desire to sort of blot out the other's existence come from? And what, what I tried to argue is that, um, you know, uh, the, the kind of thing that Freud calls projection in, in Beyond the Pleasure Principle Um, and elsewhere, of course, uh, is, is, is at play in the drive to mastery. So this is sort of getting into some of the details of the first chapter of the book. Um, but, but, uh, so in, in beyond the pleasure, which let me
1: just, let me just interject one thing. That first chapter, um, is a, just on its own is an extraordinary read um, for anyone who's sort of trying to think about how to teach about the death drive. It's really, I found it very, very helpful. I will for sure, I didn't assign it this semester, but in the future it will be assigned.
0: Thank it's, you. It's high
1: yeah, um, quality. Yeah.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I mean, in, in, in that chapter, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of this story that Freud, Freud's telling about the genesis of life and. Um, you know, so he, um, I mean, there's a, there's many different interesting parts of this story, but one of the things he says is that, um, in order for individuation to happen, like he's sort of imagining this primordial ooze, uh, a, a living vesicle pops up uh, at the top of it. And, um, the first thing that happens is of course it's absorbed right, right away back into the primordial ooze. And so right away, you're sort of left with this question. It's like, well, if that's, if, if that's what it is, like how does life ever develop? Uh, if if it's just these like little bubbles of life that are constantly being overwhelmed by um, their inorganic environment, like how do you get development in, in, in life? Um, and Freud says that, um, you know, the, the, the living vesicle that pops up on the surface, it redirects some of its own desire to be reimmersed in the inorganic ooze uh, towards the creation of this dead psychic um, layer that's sort of like crust on its outside that is is a kind of partial uh, gratification of the death drive. It's a partial satisfaction of the death drive that actually prevents the death drive from operating. So it's a sort of like channeling of the death drive in the service of individuation and separation. Uh, it's a partial death that guards against total death. That's how Freud describes it. Um, so, so that's the kind of like mechanism for doing so. But what Freud doesn't describe there is like why the living vesicle would want to do that in the first place. Like if it, if it just wants to re- return to the environment, like why would it go through the trouble of shielding itself through the construction of this dead psychic um, uh, crust uh, from its environment? And and this is where projection comes in. To return to the original point, he mm-hmm. he says that what happens is that um, there's a kind of fundamental confusion. You could kind of kind of call it like a primal repression. Um, the 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 living vesicle mistakes its own feelings to return to the environment as something that is emanating from the environment itself. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the original thought is. Like, I want to die, I want to kill myself, I want to return to the primordial ooze, and that is misrecognized as the environment itself uh, being hostile towards it. Um, it's recognized as a desire for the environment to kill it. Um, and Freud thinks that this is absolutely necessary, that like, if there's going to be uh, the development of life, if there's going to be an investment in this dead psychic Reisschutz, um, then, you know, you need to treat reality as hostile to yourself. Um, and so it's that idea that I pick up in Chapter 3 with Lacan uh, in saying that, um, you know, reality itself is not hostile, but if you are going to get psychic development, at some point reality is going to be colored as hostile because it's only then that you have the motivation to develop the kind of skills for independence and mastery that lead to psychic development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so what I want to say is that it's it is it is that the case that um, infants get the aggressive drive from the environment, but it's it's what they're imitating when they act aggressively is their own aggression projected outwards. So it's kind of like a feedback loop. Um, what they're doing and acting aggressively is mimicking the very thing that they've sent out into the world.
1: Mm-hmm. It's very it's interesting. It's it reminds me very much so of the thinking, which, uh, uh, you know, it's not extraordinarily popular, but um, of uh, Hyman Spotnitz, who is uh, the sort of founder of modern psychoanalysis, where I teach and where I was trained, and the idea that um, uh, psychosis um, develops um, on the basis of uh, there's a- aggression that seeks um, an expression and yet is cut off. It doesn't, it doesn't end up being propelled out toward an object. The object is protected. And the psyche is scrambled. The psyche um, is weakened. Or you know, when you're reading about ego weakness throughout the book, I was like, right. And so what we're looking at in psychosis, I would think of as extraordinary ego weakness. But the, ag- the aggression, which could be cohering if it were to go out, is held in and turned against the self um, before it can seek um, uh, the light of day, uh, attacking needed objects that are seen to be uh, too fragile to tolerate it, which I'm sure you've seen, you know, with your, with your kids, you know, having to, there's, there are moments in this book where having to tolerate, I hate you, daddy. You know, yeah. I know, <laughs> you know, but yeah. uh, anyway, it's, it's just, I mean, I, I, I get, I get what you're, you know, what you're talking about. Um,
0: I mean, I, I think um, that like the, the, the experience, I guess, and this is what I was, I was trying to guard against and what I found appealing about the theory like the experience is not I think that there's like a mistaken uh mistaken assumption that like when when children uh when children act aggressively, they're just mirroring behavior that they've seen elsewhere from their parents, from their teachers or whatnot. And I just find that totally wrong headed and like a kind of like naive and misguided and almost like dangerous expectation of children to think that like they're not, they're only going to act aggressively if there's something sort of unstable in their environment. Um, I think that the experience is much more of like, just, it's, it's just there, even if like, you can understand it as a intrapsychic projection that's then sort of reeled back into the psyche. Um, so there is, there is a sort of like genesis of aggressivity through an interplay with the environment. The experience is very much like, you know, it's coming from like, it's, it's inherent, it's innate. And so I wanted to, like, retain something of that experience, that it's not just environmental, that there's something that emanates from the human psyche that is aggressive um, Mm -hmm. without necessarily just saying, like, you know, it's just there.
1: Right, which I think is really um, the – it's kind of the important theoretical step that this book takes and offers because, listen, I think that the death drive is going to, like, make a comeback. I really have the feeling that drive theory – drive, no, the drive theory is on the way back. Like there's only so far, like, um, you know, we can go, like you talk about Stern and sort of attachment theory and like, okay, there are, you know, two people at the beginning of life and the baby is responding to the mother. And it's sort of like, yeah. And all, okay. Yeah. That's could be read as anthropomorphization, you know, um, as could our, our thinking about the death drive, but to return to, I mean, you know, what, what do we lose if we understand that aggression? Um, what is it? Who did I just read? Uh, uh, Eugenio Gadini who says that um, aggression seeks its object. That's how we begin. Yeah. Like in, in this it's sucking and aggressivity and the development of the mind and that the ag- aggression seeks an object first. That yeah. libido fo- that libido follows if you haven't read this Godini article I'll send it to you it's really it's it's in step with uh, I think what you're what you're uh tr- what you're working uh what you're working on or we're working on I know you run to other topics
0: but yeah please do i I don't think I've seen that um
1: yeah it's a it's yeah. short sweet very intense every sentence matters it's one of those you're just like, oh oh you know one of those articles where you're like Noo, new 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 you know very I don't know it's just terrific um
0: yeah i, I mean I think that there is something in a, attachment theory um inter, interpersonal theory to a lesser extent that that does try to sort of like i don't know it, it's sort of like um it's it, it operates under the pretense of like getting to the heart of psychoanalysis and then like cutting out the fat or something um that was a mixed <laughs> metaphor, but um you know what i mean like it's like it, it, it's like very like pragmatic and like realistic and uh, you know about like uh, biological connections, things that we all know, and conscious, right? And so that's that's <laughs> yeah, the thing. Like, it's like I, like I, you know, it'd be great if you could just describe like the depths of human uh, the human psyche in terms of just like things that we can <laughs> we can all see. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But if we wanted to like sort of take seriously the unconscious that like things go under and they come out in, in weird ways. Um, then it can't just be like biological attachments. It can't just be like an instinct for survival. Like there's, there's something like deeper having to do with like dependence and fragility and, and, and drives.
1: Right. Right. And it's funny to think that the, you know, the, I guess the only psychoanalyst, uh, involved for a while, right. With the Frankfurt school was from yeah. who couldn't have gotten rid of the drives faster. Um, you know, at least that's my my reading of him is that he washed his hands as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, of uh, the idea of the drives.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the reason, unfortunately, that you don't find a very deep engagement um, in the in the work of Adorno and Horkheimer with um, the second dual drive theory, and, and even to some extent, like Marcuse. like the the initial encounter with Eric Fromm was short. Uh, he was a he was really the only psychoanalytic member uh practicing psychoanalytic member of the frankfurt school by 1935 he was already kind of rejecting orthodox freudianism and and alienating himself from the core of the frankfurt school and by 1939 he was actually expelled from the institute um oh he was okay yeah he was um so it was it was pretty bitter and uh, like nobody let go of it. I mean, Adorno and Marcusa both continued to just like you know criticize him relentlessly, and others like like Karen Horne um, So it was it was very bitter. But but that being said, I think that much of Fromm's engagement with Freud actually did set the tone for um, the later Frankfurt School's writing on Freud. Like there's there's really only you know when 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 Adorno engages Freud, it's it's oftentimes from you know the the 1915, like lectures yeah. on psychoanalysis, yeah. it's, it's oftentimes like the early Freud and that's the Freud that from preferred before he sort of, you know, went to the revisionist term. Um, it's just,
1: and which yeah. is so funny to think of because, you know, like civilization and its discontents always seems to me like, you know, and, and, you know, the, uh, beyond the pleasure principle seem to me like of a piece in my mind with, um, much of the thinking of the Frankfurt School, and yet you're right, right? It's like it was not not taken up. Um, uh, you know, with yeah. Any, there,
0: there was a lack of a, a kind of there was a lack of a theoretical engagement, um, and I think that that's sort of what I tried to, to remedy in the book to try to put these two things that probably should have gone together uh, together and sort of see what happens.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, and I think you've done a terrific job of it. Um, is there anything? that we haven't touched on that you'd like the listeners to know about this book. Um, anything, uh, you know, that we haven't, haven't, uh, haven't engaged with. Um. um, yeah, I mean the, I guess
0: the, the Frankfurt school part, like a lot of the stuff about the culture industry, um, in, in the later half of the book, we've sort of talked primarily about the psychoanalytic part and less the critical social theory part. Um, right. And, um, no, I mean, like, I think we're we're almost approaching an hour, so we don't need to get into it too much. I, I think that to address, um, I guess, maybe a concern that you brought up at the beginning about the the bleakness of the Frankfurt School's work. Um, so this was the, the book was actually published, uh, I think, like November ninth, twenty sixteen. So it was like the day or two after Trump. No wonder election. I couldn't read it
1: yeah. for so long. <laughs> Like Not I can't pick. Need that right? I, I, I uh, turn the title around, and my shelf probably
0: like no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, like uh, that that weekend, the weekend after the election, uh, there was a conference at um, at Hunter College, convened by Robin Morasco, called "The Authoritarian Personality Revisited." That I oh my god. I <laughs> it was uh, It was like, it was literally like three days after the election. I got to New York and like everyone's just like walking around in a daze, you know, it's, it was really a visceral feeling. Um, yeah. and, um, and Bob Hulot Kenter was there and, and Robin was there. A lot of, uh, great people were there. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, it felt like very, it felt very like obviously apropos to be having that, that, um, conference and, in many ways, the sort of bleak conclusions that are uh, of the Frankfurt school that are admittedly reaffirmed in, in my book um, felt appropriate, but at the same time, you know, since then, which just feels like, you know, ages ago, um, you know, politics is back. Uh, It does sort of seem like there's a political possibility that um, certainly wasn't uh, available uh, for most of my lifetime. And as horrifying as, um, you know, the, 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 turn towards, um, uh, right-wing ideologies and, uh, you know, proto-fascist sort of rhetoric is, uh, there's also, you know, the possibility of legitimate, like socialist, uh, or at least like social democratic politics again. Uh, and that's a tremendously exciting, exciting, uh, term, um, that, you know, people are starting to think about like, uh, transformative politics that help out working people. And so I guess, you know, I mean, like sort of rereading the book in preparation for this interview, I was sort of wondering like, you know, we, are we, um, are we justified still in sort of like seeing the, the culture industry as this, uh, all consuming, um, process of subjectification that prevents okay. subjects from, uh, engaging politically. And in fact, even like thinking rationally and, um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that on the one hand, perhaps, uh, like, the, the book certainly doesn't pretend to talk about, like, politics in any sustained fashion, though there are, like, maybe implications at the end. Um, but I do think that, like, it, it is a political problem, uh, the, the sort of, like, core, core concern uh, at the heart of Adorno and uh, Horkheimer's work, which is that the culture industry, you know, this um this like network of media conglomerates that started with television and radio and and newspapers and has like you know turned into the the thing it is today um it is it is limiting it is subjectifying it does uh, it does concern us where we should be concerned with other things it offers gratification. it offers like real psychic satisfaction in a way that is um, I think like, Limiting and degrading and uh, and uh, you know preventative of the ex- expression of other capacities, um, and so you know I I think I really like this book uh, by Wolfgang Streak called um, How Will Capitalism End, and in that book he talks about how you know part of a a real political awakening in the twenty first century does mean taking people who are used to going home and watching Netflix, who um, you know are, are more concerned like with their kids' soccer practice schedule than like political meetings. Um, mm-hmm. It's taking a lot of that stuff and turning it towards properly political energy. And so I think that the question of like what to do about the culture industry, like what to do about mm-hmm. this extremely like distracting entity, uh, and how of which
1: we, we're apart right now. Of
0: which we're of absolutely apart, <laughs> uh, and which which I enjoy. Which which which, right. which which you'd be hard pressed to say is not like enjoyable. Um, mm-hmm. How do you take that and turn it into something else? You know.
1: Um, well, so how does how does the superego – It's okay if we go a bit over. We're not. This is not a proper psychoanalytic session. But I <laughs> I have a question. So how does your um, uh, or I just have a resistance to ending it uh, or something? But um, you know, countertransference resistance. Drive. Here it it's is. Yeah. yeah um but if in thinking about your reconceptualization um you know via lowald of of and and a little bit of critchley the superego is my amigo how does this different superego relate to um the products of the culture industry what's
0: yeah um so yeah. <laughs> this is this is sort of getting into the details of the fourth chapter and um I mean, just very, very swiftly, uh, I'm, I'm trying, you know, the first couple of sections, I'm trying to lay the groundwork for a better engagement of Adorno and Horkheimer's work um, with psychoanalytic theory. Like I have to work through some some very complicated um, concepts like uh, like mimesis as, as it's yes. used by Adorno and Horkheimer. And so I, I'm trying to like, you know, set up an engagement. And so the fruit is really that I, I want to say that there's there's two there's two ways in which they understand subjection to operate in late capitalism. And the first is a sort of direct death death drive gratification that you find in in, in all forms of like media um, dispensed by the culture industry, which is, you know, the ability to lose oneself to to to, to be to, to find a break from one's ego. Um in sort of limited amounts. So, you know, I, I turned to Bernard Stiegler, who um has this like great article about uh the function of film in contemporary society. Um, you know, and, and the whole purpose, it's sort of like like disarmingly simple to say, but the purpose is to like lose yourself for you know for 22 minutes, for for an hour and a half, um uh to, to sort of let one's own time be taken over by something else. And I think that what he's he's getting at there adequately does describe much of the appeal of the culture industry which is that you are you're looking for a break. You're not looking for the acquisition of a new skill as if you were learning an instrument or a new language. You're not looking for some some kind of like cultural development. You're really just looking for like an escape from yourself for a limited amount of time. And in that sense I think that it does get to a lot of what Lowell's describing in, in in death drive gratification. Um, but then the other part of it, to get to your question, has to do with the superego. And I think that what this um or what I argued this direct death drive gratification does is that it kind of like lowers the temperature of edible conflict so that the superego that emerges from it um, is not is not the kind of like dynamic entity that Freud uh, intimated it was and, and Lowell thought it was, but it's rather kind of like, it's like a limited, um, it's much more limited. And so I say in the book, like the superego fails to provide the ego with the tension of a real adversary, becoming right. much more like a motivational coach who only right. castigates the ego for failing to live up to pre-established norms. Mm-hmm. Um, and Adorno has this great phrase in this one, this one paper that's not uh, been been translated into English uh, about a new anthropological type, where he says that um, you know the subjects uh, that exist in late capitalism exist hinleven uh, or like like li- they they live straight ahead. So it's sort of relating to like yes. look- looking straight ahead, like with like a blinkered existence. Uh, but he says that you live straight ahead, so it's not that you know you don't sort of judge yourself in your capacities. Uh, like how well you're living up to like your goals and your accomplishments and your productivity levels, whatever. Um, it's just that you only judge yourself straight ahead. insofar so far as you like exist on a single vector of existence. And I think that what Adorno thinks uh, uh, like a real uh, super ego should be is something that's, you know, much more critical. Like it takes the time to sort of like evaluate your life from multiple perspectives to, to be critical, not just of how you're failing to live up to goals, but of like the goals themselves. Um, mm-hmm. and so I think that what Adorno sort of like goal for Adorno, the way in which we get to, uh, to, to prioritize objects in his language again is, yeah. is through a sort of like renewal of critical capacities, um, that we need to take, we need to sort of inflate the superego again into something that is, Relentlessly critical of not not only every aspect of capitalist society and existence as we know it, but also of our own capacities, of our own skills, of our own goals. Uh, and he, I think that he thought that this this sort of relentless form of self criticism um, could could work on one's projections in such a way as to put people in touch with reality again. But it does require a kind of ascetic practice of. Um, of, of relentless criticism that's carried out. Or psychoanalysis
1: super-ego. for all.
0: Analysis for all at all times. <laughs>
1: at, at all times. Yeah. In both <laughs> <and> time. <laughs> <The extended laughs> I tend to think of that superego as what I, I refer to as an observing ego. It's funny that I don't think of that even as the superego. But um yeah, the capacity to observe oneself and to tolerate knowing things that are um, unpleasant um and to know things about one's reality that are unpleasant um and to then begin to think well you know is this is this all inevitable or why, right but yeah the lure of you know just another film just another you know which i it's right it's right there it's been surprising to me how much more um uh, Netflix I've watched in the last two years. It really um, gave me cause to pause because um, I never was a big Netflix watcher. Like the need, the, the desire to regress and go back to the primordial, you know, was a has been has has been, it's been a struggle. I think you know, under, understandably, for many of us. So
0: yeah, um, it's real. So. The appeal is absolutely real, and um, <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. You know, it, it, I think it is. I think streak is right that it's a central obstacle to political organizing in the twenty first century. Um, How you how you go from something that is so immediately appealing, metabolizable, digestible to to something that's actually just kind of sucks a lot of time, which is like, you know, going to political meetings and, um, you know, finding a way to collectively organize um, for a better society, Um, you know, in, in, in recognition of the truly sort of like apocalyptic crises that we're we're going through. Uh, right. it is a right. sort of central concern then, like how, how you overcome the, the sort of traps of the culture industry.
1: Right. And also getting what you want doesn't always feel good, even though it's better. Um, you yeah. know, or as I say to some patients, well, you know, you could quit your analysis now, um, or you could stay with me and probably things in your life will get better, but it won't always, but it, but it won't necessarily feel better. And that's it. really, you know, like to, to. to it's that there's the death drive. It's like, I don't want anything new. I don't yeah. want to have a different experience, you know, which we're yeah. always um, contending with. I mean, that's, there's no outside of it, but I think bringing the death drive into like, you know, the, into the minds of those who are working politically for change. It's like, you know, recognize it's not, you know, false consciousness. It's like, you know, there's something, there's something very human about um, the desire for, um, for stasis um, or, or worse, uh, which is, you know, not, it's, not a, it's not a rosy view. But I think you end the book saying something, actually. This, um, it's hard to end this interview because there's a lot to say, but I think you see something um, uh, right, that um, eternal eros uh, has a chance only if we do not blind ourselves to its adversary, um, which I um, took to mean more or less uh, the death drive think that uh maybe that's we have to bring things uh to to a close um on, on that unless there's anything last minute you want to say which we'll just no i think <laughs> it's going.
0: appropriate to, to end by saying that uh you know netflix is just like the natural uh purveyor of the death drive <laughs>
1: And yet, and and yet, I probably have like Showtime and you name it attached yeah. to my Netflix. Right? We'll, we'll both be
0: on there tonight.
1: We will exactly. All right, so Ben Pong, thank you so much for joining us. Um, really, this was a pleasure. I'm glad we uh, had the chance um, to find a time to talk. So, yeah. and for all the listeners out there. Um, Uh, stay tuned. Um, there's a lot more interviews, um, coming down the pike from myself and from, uh, other hosts. Um, so, uh, all for now. Okay.
0: Thanks Tracy.